invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 1. The title of the message is The Christian's Walk, or The Christian Walk, which sounds like exercise, doesn't it? And in some ways it is. Anybody here struggle with exercise? That was a quick hand. Anybody a member of a gym? That's not a lot of hands. How many of you are a member of a gym and you actually go? All right, there were more people raise their hands that are members of a gym that actually go than are members of gyms. Not sure. Let me ask a deeper question. How many of you struggle in the Christian life, just, just walking with God? How, are there struggles there? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Their expectations of a gym membership, the main expectation is they're going to draft your account every month. doesn't matter if you come or not. Do you tell them you're not a member anymore? As long as you're a member, there's an expectation. They want you to pay. I haven't had them call me yet and say, where have you been the last three years? But there's also expectations in walking the Christian life. And I want you to get this right to start with. The first three chapters of Ephesians have been a lot about doctrine. Good, sound teaching. And so we get to verse 1 of chapter 4, and you're going to see that word, therefore. You need to find out what it's there for, right? It's based on all that teaching of doctrine. What's Paul been teaching? How are you saved? By grace. Through what? This is audience participation time. This is actually live. I don't know if you know that or not. This isn't video. I'm actually here. You can talk back to the screen. Yeah, we've been saved. That's what Paul has been teaching through especially chapter 2, but he reiterates it in his prayer in chapter 3. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not a result of works. It's not based on our effort. Now, Ephesians 2.10, you're created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we've got to get the balance. So we're saved that way. And the other thing he's teaching is the ground's level at the cross. So he's writing to a church in Ephesus that was made up primarily of Gentiles, which meant pagans and heathens which means us, but also Jews who've come to faith in Christ. And what he's trying to teach them is there's no distinction anymore between Jew and Gentile. So we get to verse 1 of chapter 3, and he says, Therefore, let me read the passage. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul says, therefore, he says it often in his writings, and it's simply to say, based on the case that I've made up to this point, and keep in mind, when Paul wrote the New his part of the New Testament, just like the other New Testament writers, they didn't have chapters or verses, it was just a writing. We've come in behind that to make it a little more readable by putting chapter numbers and verse numbers, but Paul is continuing with the thought, and he turns a corner. In fact, some scholars say verse 1 is the most important verse of the whole epistle. The whole epistle kind of hinges on what he's writing right here. 
Therefore, based on what we've taught up to this point, based on right doctrine being essential to right living, he's got something he wants to teach us. And he reminds them of his position. He reminds them that he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner of the Lord. Okay, we talked about that a little bit last week. What does that mean? That means by now Paul is in Rome. He's a prisoner. We find out from other writings that he was under house arrest. Okay, he's chained to a Roman guard. Back then they didn't have ankle bracelets. So he's on house arrest with what their version of an ankle bracelet was. It was a Roman guard who would be chained to him in shifts 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it amazes me that when Paul writes, it's to benefit and bless somebody else. Because if I write you from prison, it's going to be, woe is me, I'm in prison, I'm chained to this dude, i got no privacy, I can't go outside, come get me out. That's pretty much what my prayer is going to be, or my letter is going to start off with. But Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, understand, as the readers in Ephesus read this and the other churches in that area, and we need to understand as we read it, Paul understood the cost of walking a manner worthy of his calling. It cost him his freedom. Ultimately, it would cost him his life as it did the other disciples. And so Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord, I implore you. I implore you. This, this is one of those words that literally means to invite near. Now, some of them could come and visit Paul, but he's writing to people who couldn't come and visit, but he's saying, I want that kind of tenor to the instructions that I'm about to give you. I'm inviting you to come and sit with me for a few minutes as a friend, someone call to me because I'm imploring you to walk. To walk. Paul uses that phrase a lot. And as a, as a younger pastor and, and as a teenager, I remember thinking, man, that, that sounds so deeply theological. But there's nothing deeply theological about walking, is there? All of you, for the most part, walked in here. Unless you're physically unable, you've all walked at some point in your life, right? Did you think coming in today, okay, today we're going left first and right next? No, it's become second nature. And so that's what Paul is saying is the Christian walk should be like that. Walk. It's the word used of Enoch back in Genesis when it said Enoch walked with God. It says he walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Not a lot written about Enoch, but Enoch just was walking so close with God one day that God just said, come on. Closer to my house than it is to yours anyway. Let's go. That's what Paul is saying. This let's walk in a manner worthy. Really one word. Meaning walk appropriately or better. Walk with balanced scales. That's the illustration. That's the word how it's used. If you remember those old timey scales. Where you put a weight on one side. And then whatever you're weighing you put on the other side. And you keep adding Wait over here until the scale balances. That's what Paul's saying. Walk in a manner worthy, meaning your calling is this weighty. And so make sure your walk balances that. And I think we got to get, we got to understand the calling. God has sovereignly called us to himself. Are you excited about your salvation? This is audience participation time. Somebody say something about, are you excited about the fact that God has saved you? Well, your salvation ought to translate into how you live your life. You meet Christians all the time that you can't tell they're saved or not. 
And the problem is they're just religious. And it's frustrating to just be religious. Because if all you are is religious and you try to behave like people who've got the real thing, it's empty. Because the only way you can live the Christian life is if God's living it through you. And for some of you, that's all you needed to hear this morning. That was enough right there. Put that down in your notes. Now, keep paying attention. You might hear something else. But to walk in a manner worthy of our calling means you've got to understand how high the calling is, the value, the weightiness of the calling. And then you live your life corresponding to that. And Paul says live your life in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. What, what does a worthy walk look like? Looks like Jesus. What people ought to say about you is, you remind me a lot about a lot of Jesus. There ought to be a family resemblance. For some of you, this is a scary thought. You're going to end up looking a lot like your parents. I don't have a bunch of teenagers here to say that to you because that really scares teenagers. But also, your children, parents, are going to end up looking a lot like you both in the way they think, the way they speak, and even sometimes their physical appearance. It used to bother me a little bit when I go to the nursery and pick up my son, and they'd say, we can tell he's your son. You kind of wonder, what, okay, what did he do? <laughs> Is that a good thing or a bad thing? My daughter, we were walking at the mall. I was holding her hands, and I have a tendency to throw my feet out when I walk. Well, she noticed that. She said, Daddy, you walk like this. I said, quit that. It's embarrassing. <laughs> but I remember that's how my dad walked. But I don't know if it's just bone structure or just that's the way I was kind of trained. I just watched him. So if you're going to live your life in a manner worthy of your calling, it's going to be that you have a sense of the high calling of God. Okay, I don't know what that is. Can you still hear me? Y'all hear from the rear. That's good. I'm getting thumbs up. Good. I don't know what happened. But to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, you've got to understand the high calling that you've been called with. And your walk should look like Jesus. So the closer you get to Christ, the more your walk is going to look like Him, right? So that's the encouragement from Paul. Let, let's look at the practical application because I love the rest of the letter. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are very practical. So let's un unpack the practicality, five things here, five things. Here's how you walk in a manner worthy of your calling. First of all, walk with all humility. Literally a, a lowliness of mind, thinking less of yourself than you think of others. The opposite of humility is pride. Pride is being filled with self. Humility is being filled with God. Here's the problem with humility. As soon as you start thinking you got it, you don't have it anymore. Like the pastor said, I was going to preach a sermon on humility, but I was just waiting for more people to show up. Or the author that wrote a book, My Humility and How I Attained It. All right, we struggle with humility, so maybe it's helpful to know the opposite of humility is pride. Here's the bottom line. What do you think about more than, than anything else? Are you thinking about yourself or do you think about others? And that's a struggle for all of us. Don't raise your hand. 
But that's a struggle, especially the culture and generation we live in. It's all about us. And the people you hang around, especially if they don't know the Lord, they're not struggling with humility because they don't have any. It's always going to be about them. And so to live the Christian life in this culture and climate, especially in America, is to really battle every day with pride. What about me? So we walk with humility. And back to the greatness of God. When we really catch the greatness of God and the salvation that He's called us to, how can we think so much of ourselves? I didn't deserve any of it. Second thing, walk with gentleness. Literally mildness or meekness. And keep in mind, this is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Gentleness. And that doesn't seem real manly, especially when you hear the word mild. There's some men in here, you're thinking, ain't nothing about me that's mild. Let me help you with this. We actually have a cycle. We have a button on our washing machine called the gentle cycle. There's not a thing in my wardrobe that I want washed on the gentle cycle. But guys, you need to know this. There's ladies that have things they want washed on the gentle cycle. They want it washed in a special little bag that protects their stuff. They want you to use things like woolite. Does that sound like that's going to get anything out? No. Woolite, that's just going to tease stuff. You're just pretending that you're cleaning something. I want borax mule power detergent. I want, I want a fight happening. We've got one of those washing machines now that's top loaded, and there's a, there's a glass. I can look in there. I want to see some suds happening. I want to see a bunch of agitation. I want it to look like a battle royale that's happening in the washing machine. But that's not gentle. And so if you struggle with gentleness, guys, let me, t- let me tell you something. First of all, Jesus said he was gentle. But also my favorite definition of the word gentle is this, power under control. If you've ever gone horseback riding, has a thought ever crossed your mind when you're sitting on the back of that horse, that horse is a lot stronger than you are. The reason we can ride horses is because their power has been brought under control. And you're thinking, well, he may be more powerful than I am, but I'm smarter. Gary Phillips, who's running the sound, and I rode horseback. Horseback? We rode horses back. We went horseback riding with a group years ago on this road in between Townsend, Tennessee, and Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And he and I were kind of the leaders. We had some students with us. And so we were kind of in the front. And the guy had told us, he said, all right, you're going to ride the horse up to this top of the mountain, and you're going to ride along a ridge. But when you get to the top, It's not going to take you long, but when you get up there, the horse is a little tired. There's a stop sign. Wait five minutes. Let everybody gather. Wait five minutes and then take back off. So I thought, okay. So we've gotten the instruction. We're riding. We're talking. We come to the stop sign. I kind of forgot about the stop sign, but apparently my horse could read. And so it stopped. And I said, oh, yeah, that's right. So I kind of looked at my watch. We're supposed to stop for five minutes. We got back to talking, and I wasn't paying attention to the watch, but the horse took back off. And I looked at my watch. It had been five minutes. I'm looking at his hoof and thinking, has he got like a hoof watch? I mean, how did he do that? And it finally dawned on me, this horse may be smarter than I am. 
At least he's paying attention better than I. But it's power under control. And regardless of who was smarter, I can tell you the horse was a lot more powerful. But it was that power under control. So in case you've got this manly disease of thinking, I can't, you know, I don't want to do anything gentle. You're called to that in Scripture. You're called to gentleness. You're called to walk the Christian life in gentleness. But understand, it literally means power under control. One of the best examples of that is Jesus Christ. Multiple times throughout Scripture. But certainly my favorite is coming out of the Garden of Gethsemane where he has prayed for this cup to pass him, and yet not my will, but your will be done. And they walk across, and he's about to be arrested. And you remember what Peter does? Whips out a sword and cuts off the high priest's slave's ear. And Jesus heals the guy, and he looks at Peter, and looks at all the disciples and says, Do you not understand? I could have called 12 legions of angels. How many angels would it have taken to, to rectify the situation? I'm thinking one. It could have taken one. He's gonna, he could call over 70,000. A bit of overkill. But what it teaches us is this. Jesus was powerful enough to not go to the cross. But it was power under control. It was willingly submitting to the will of the Father and the plan of salvation of God that took him to the cross. So when you start thinking gentleness isn't going to be part of your wardrobe, understand something. You ain't going to be anything like Jesus until you learn to be gentle. Power under control. Then showing tolerance. Showing tolerance. The word literally means to press up against one another. It literally means bearing with one another. Showing tolerance means to put up with or bear with. It's able to make allowances for the faults of other believers. When you finally realize that everybody isn't as perfect as you are. And better than that, when you finally realize how imperfect you are, you put up with the faults of others. It's a practical outworking of patience, which I skipped. Let's go back to patience. I'm sorry if you're taking notes. Scratch that out. The, the next word is patience. The third word is patience, literally long-suffering. The opposite of which is short-temperedness. The opposite of gentleness is violence. The opposite of patience is being short-tempered. And it shows a lack of humility and love. Don't raise your hand here, but do you struggle with patience? In, in the generation we live in, I struggle with patience. I struggle getting in the passing lane with a car that's going 10 miles under the speed limit. And there's nobody in front of us. That's where road rage comes from. And I think there's times that God puts me in that position because he's still trying to bear patience in my life. He's still trying to pour into my life patience. That's James chapter 1. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or patience. So if you've ever pay, prayed for patience, the only way you get it is going through trials. And the reason God brings trials in your life is because he loves you and wants you to be more like him. And some of you are already thinking, I wish you didn't love me so much. No, God wants you to be patient. Showing tolerance is that practical outworking of patience, that pressing up against, that not giving up on a fellow believer because they're struggling in a certain area. The fifth thing is being diligent. 
And what we're to be diligent is to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So Paul is saying, church, you as an individual member of that church, you as a part of the body of Christ, need to be diligent. It literally means to keep your eye on, to guard, and to guard what? To guard the unity of the church. We don't create the unity. Hear this. We're not the ones that create it. The Holy Spirit creates unity. So we don't create it. We don't manufacture it. We don't make it happen, but we guard it. We make sure that we're not a part of anything that would break unity in the church. Romans 12, 18 says this, As far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. I think there's some things happening in churches today that are breaking unity. And you've got to ask yourself the question, is this a, an essential doctrinal issue that I have to take a stand on? Because unity at all costs means compromise, and there's some things we don't compromise as believers. We still try to guard the unity. We still do it in a loving way. But is it essential or is it non-essential? Is it something that doesn't matter in eternity? Then is it something that's not spelled out in God's Word? Is it something along the lines of the color of the carpet? Or whether you've got pews or chairs? Or the kind of music? Or is it an essential? Is it something God has already said, this is the right way to do it, this is not the right way to do it? So we guard, we're diligent to guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then last, our unity in Christ. Jesus prayed in the upper room with his disciples, Father, I pray that they would be one, even as you and I are one. And you really can't divide one if what, is, what one is is living. We're part of the body of Christ that's living. You can't cut that in half because you'll kill it. So there's no division of one. So Paul is going to give seven things. And if you're taking notes in the bulletin, there's only six lines there. But there's a lot of space on the right to add a line. So there's seven things I'm going to go through quickly. First thing Paul says in verses 4 through 6 is there's one body. What is he talking about? He's talking about the church. There's a lot of different churches that meet, but the church is the body of Christ. It's the ecclesia, the called out ones. So we're part of the universal church in that sense as believers in Christ. He's not talking about denominations. He's not talking about geography. He's not talking about ethnic or racial body. He's talking about the church that transcends all of that. He's not talking about Gentile or Jew or male or female or slave or free. It's Christ's body, the church, which includes all of those components. So there's only one body. There's only one spirit. And we've already learned earlier in the Ephesians, the Holy Spirit's been given as a pledge of our inheritance. There's only one spirit. The presence of the Spirit constitutes the church and is the basis of the unity. Just as you were called. Only one Spirit, just as you were called. There's different gifts, there's different places of service, but there's one calling. And then there's one hope of our calling. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, he said, You formerly were without a hope. You had no expectation of the future. You meet people every day who have no hope. They think this is as good as it gets. But it's not. In some ways, this is as bad as it gets. 
I have a hope of a calling, and that calling is to faith in Christ, but ultimately to spend eternity in heaven with my God. That's the hope that we have. There's one Lord. The word means supreme and authority or master. If Christ isn't the Lord, then you can't possibly have unity. In order for Christ to be the Lord, you're going to have to take yourself off the throne. That's going to be the biggest battle to Jesus being Lord, is who's on the throne. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, part of the Ten Commandments, you know this, you shall have no other gods before me. I used to think that meant like higher on the list. Like I could have this list where, all right, God, you're number one, but I got some stuff number two, three, four, and five. It's not what the word before means. It literally means before my face. So what God's saying is, I don't want to see you worshiping any other gods. I don't care where they are in the list. There can be nothing in your life that's more important than God or that could ever take the place of God. And so if that's what it means for him to be master, supreme in authority, our Lord, how are we doing? Is there anything in your life that's trying to usurp his position on the throne of your life? If so, you've got to confess that and have him remove it. There's one faith, literally one persuasion, one moral conviction. There's one baptism. I think he's talking about the outward symbol of baptism. I think he's talking about water immersion baptism. I think he's saying to this, to the people in the church in the New Testament, to go down to the river or to a body of water and be baptized might cost you your life. It certainly could cost you your freedom, and in often cases it costs you your family. When you identified with Christ and said, Jesus is Lord, you've confessed that with your mouth, then you went with the outward symbol of baptism, it meant something. It ought to mean something today. And there's places on earth where people are baptized today that they're taking a risk. They're saying Jesus is Lord, and then they're living it out by being obedient to his example and command to be baptized. And then last, there's one God and Father of all. There's not multiple gods. There's one God in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is over all sovereign, who is through all omnipotent, who's in all omnipresent God. So how are we going to do that practically? I've used the wheel illustration before, but if you picture a wheel with spokes, if, sin, if Jesus is the center, the hub of the wheel, unity happens the closer you get to Christ the closer you get to each other. The spokes, as they approach the hub, get closer to one another. So as we pray for unity in the church, my first responsibility is to get closer to Christ. My first responsibility is to encourage other people to get closer to Christ because that's where we'll get closer to each other. Make sure that it's Jesus that is at the center. And that's an individual responsibility. Live a life worthy of your calling. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the application of it. And we confess even in that, that with humans, with man, this is impossible. And yet you have promised, you who began a good work in us will bring it about to completion. So, Father, I pray for men and women across this auditorium that 
we would live a life worthy of the calling, that we would, we would recognize the value of the calling that you've placed on our life for salvation and that we would keep our eye on the enemy, we guard it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand as we sing the closing chorus.